0: The following episode contains sensitive content. It is recommended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: We acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we meet and the land on which you are listening. We pay our respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the country on which this podcast was recorded. This podcast was produced in a private residence in Marrickville, Sydney and is a completely independent production. We do not act on behalf of any organisation or sponsor. Our views are entirely our own. You're about to join a conversation between two women from Sydney, Australia, talking about losing their loved one to suicide. It is unscripted. This is ordinary people sharing their lived experience. This is Talking Lived.
2: For the investigation, coroners, police, that kind of deal. Did you, did you? What involvement did you have in it?
0: Well, the coroner. Um, I did have in, engagement with the coroner, simply because I insisted on having. Um, I, I requested an inquest. I knew they probably were not going to do an inquest uh, into her death but i had the sense that i wanted to request it because i wanted to be sure that the details around her death were had come out i mean at the time of her death my brain was full of the uh, circumstances of what had happened the he said, she said, what happened here, what sort of response you got there. And there are a lot of situations where I really thought, oh, this needs to be on the public record. And uh, so I pushed for an inquest, even though I knew it was very clear from my daughter's death that it was a suicide, there was no nobody else involved, there was no suspicious circumstances. Um, and within that coroner's process, I guess there was police that had to be dealt with. We dealt with the police uh, who were doing the uh, reporting from the suicide, but there were police involved who'd been called out before uh, when Gabby, when there were welfare checks done for Gabby, and there were police involved uh, who were working on the child sexual assault case that Gabby was a witness to. So there were quite a few police and coroners and then there was the the police liaison to the coroner who you're dealing with and, yeah, that's it. It ends up being quite a bit of a mess, a lot of people, but you don't really know who you're dealing with and you're trying to just navigate that system and that situation as it comes up. And when it did come up, I did try to get some legal help I thought, I don't understand, have no clue whatsoever about what even coroner's court is or even an inquest, you know, like you sort of hear, oh yeah, an investigation into someone's death, but really just such a headline understanding of what the processes were that would be going through. So everything was touch and go, but my main uh, quest was to um, have on the record the information of things that had happened around um, Gabby's death.
2: Yeah, uh, it's a, same for us in the sense that there, you immediately become, you have to maintain contact with multiple agencies. All of this being completely foreign to me. I knew nothing about this going into it. But yeah, we certainly. Uh, I was the next of kin because I was Jason's partner at the time. And I think they have a way of kind of this senior next of kin. I don't know how they use this. There's a very specific set of language and jargon, isn't there, that they use, which I also was not acquainted with. But we, Jason died interstate. So we live in Sydney. Jason lived in another, uh, died in another state. So we had two different police administrations to deal with who were preparing reports um, and we had to give witness statements. They had to prepare their report and then it had to be kind of investigated by the coroner. So part of those processes, I think the interesting thing from my point of view is that part of those processes happen in parallel. So Jason died of a drug overdose. So there was toxicology and kind of a medical examination that happened that was managed by one agency which was overseen by the coroner's court but we were also having to deal with um, police as well because when someone dies in this way it's an unexplained death so there are circumstances where it's not a suicide it's something else Um, and I know I've certainly spoken to people we've had this discussion before where you're you're a suspect you can be a suspect if you've got close proximity to the event and where it occurred so the police deal with families in some circumstances in that way and that's highly traumatizing for for the people involved
0: Did you have any expectations on what that experience was going to be like with the police and the coroner and, and what was it actually like? Um, did it take the time that you expected or
2: yeah, did you have I,
0: any expectations? The
2: weird thing about it is that I I knew i I I've never been through this process before, as most people don't. they this hasn't if it's gonna happen, it'll happen to you, you know, once in a lifetime, we hope. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realise that I did have expectations, but I think I kind of did. And I think my expectations were sort of around the fact that I thought compassion would be sort of built into the system a bit more effectively than it is. Because when this, I mean, this experience is awful, it knocks you sideways, you feel, you feel so fragile and vulnerable and broken and I kind of expected that the system would be more there there and it's not. It's uh, you are dealing with multiple bureaucracies that have their independent jobs to do and they need to do those things objectively. So that, that is part of it. Um, but <laughs> I found the coroner's court, let's put it that way, I found dealing with the coroners and that side of it. Um, The people involved were a lot better informed, I think, of how to speak to families who've been through a tragedy. Mm. My experience with the police was not like that. Um, And I understand they're preparing a brief, they're preparing witness statements, they're researching, they research the history of Jason's life. So when we went in to, to give witness statements, we had to really talk about all of it, it wasn't just what had happened before his death, but the entire history of our life together. And I, I think that interpersonal training needs work, I've got to say it. So I think I expected more of a personal... This was such a deeply personal event. I think ignorantly and naively I expected that the system response was going to be a bit more personal And it wasn't. It was a system response. So they're a bureaucracy just like any other bureaucracy. There are queues. There are delays. Mm -hmm. They take as long as their paperwork takes. And sometimes you'll get incredibly rude people on the phone. And when you're in a fragile state and so raw, I think you feel that in a way you wouldn't... It would just wash over you. Mm -hmm. But when you're in, going out of your mind, um, things just impact I think a bit more uh,
0: they hurt. Yes and as you said each person in that system is doing their own little job nobody sits you down and takes you by the hand and says well actually the overview a mega view of this or a a, um, um, overview of this um, process is x y and z and nobody actually took me by the hand and told me that you know you don't know they're all just doing their bits and if if you knew what to expect maybe things could be uh uh yeah I I guess that's it you're just going in so green like most of us haven't been through this process so you you thrust into something that is an you know whether it's a well-oiled machine it is an oiled machine that does its has its own cogs and And checks and balances in there but that does not actually include you know individuals but i have to say i dealt with the coroners um i don't know what i expected i i expected justice i think Mm. that is what i went in going for and i expected the reason i'm doing this is because i want justice for my daughter i want uh the system that is failing people to not be failing people because it was clear even when Gabby was alive that hang on a minute these people are not really helping us with what we want we're asking for this help and we're not really getting it we're getting fobbed off and at the time you're thinking oh is this fob off is this for our benefit is this something we need to navigate and figure out and it wasn't until after she's dead that I go, no, that fob off wasn't for our benefit. That was for their benefit. And yeah. that hasn't helped us. So I heard so many stories after Gabby died. I started listening to podcasts and, and books and all kinds of stories about people who'd been through similar experiences and realized there were so many similar things, such parallel stories. And. Mm. Um, I think Tanya, it's why you and I have come together on this podcast. In the way is because we've heard these parallel stories from so many places, and even though very different circumstances, about parallel treatment from the systems that haven't really helped people. And the coroner I had, I'm extremely grateful. Uh, you know, they they called for a. Um, papers you know they just call it we're talking about papers so I turned up at the court every day that I knew it was going to be on and I think that's a really good thing for people to know if they if it's up for a mention you can go they might not talk about the case of your daughter but you can go and you can turn up and that's what I did and the coroner gave me a couple of references to similar cases that he had uh, presided over and they were very Thorough, deep, long investigations that into the whole story—the story of that person's life—sometimes for years before they had suicided, and their treatment and their behaviour in the mental health system, and what had happened. And um, he gave that to me to help me understand, uh, you know, the complexity of it. Because I think when you're in grief, all you can see is your—it's just. It's just such a blast of um, it, a blast of shock, yeah. you know, and uh, that's all you can see. But he gave me these other cases, and I read through them both. I printed, found them, mm. printed them both off, and read them through in detail, which is harrowing reading, I have yeah. to say. And I could see the coroner can understand that the system is unjust. You could see the coroner is obviously seeing way too many and hearing way too many of these types of stories, but he didn't really have an answer for me. And he, um, he, but he was very fair-minded. And if there was anyone that articulated the process and everything that was going to happen, he did everything he could to explain things to me that I had a, handle on it, not only from my perspective, but from the system perspective. So I really understood what was coming down the line. And if certain, if X happens, then Y is going to ensue and et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah, look, again, more echoes in our experience, despite the fact that we were actually in a different state. So because Jason died in Victoria, we were dealing with the coroner's court in Victoria. I couldn't speak highly enough of them. They were actually fantastic um, in trying doing the best they could to kind of keep us informed of what not only what was coming down the road but also what what we needed to do in the immediate sense. so they were fantastic. But another thing that you were just talking about that was just ding 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 for me, we had a lot of contact with uh, the mental health system. So Jason had a psychiatrist. He also was being prescribed. Um, sort of psychiatric mental health drugs from his GP. So he was getting, there was, that was also an intervention. And he also had a trauma counsellor who was a social worker. And that was kind of a a later part of his, another way that we were trying to find a solution to help him cope um, with what, he was struggling with, with his anxiety and depression. So there were multiple touch points that we had in the mental health system and I couldn't be more critical of them. So yeah. <laughs> um, I, I really couldn't. I, mm. And I actually don't, I don't think I've fully come to an understanding about where I sit with all that, but I know there was a catastrophic failure I can tell you that, mm. despite the fact that he had had into, uh, contact with that system for more than 20 years. He'd certainly seen his psychiatrist for seven or eight years at that point. Like they'd had a long standing relationship. He'd been seeing his trauma counsellor for the last 12 months. And I think, again, just my perspective, I think part of their reluctance to really have much involvement with us the family that was left behind um, was because they feared litigation i think that is what so he was in their care so he had he had conversations he was having um, appointments with both his psychiatrist um, and his trauma counselor in the week and in the days like immediately before he died and the fact that there was no recognition, there were so they all those people independently have to give witness statements. So they had to they fed into this analysis process where the coroner's trying to put together, okay, what the hell went wrong here? All of those people gave statements. And there's multiple things I feel. One is they're only they are people and their focus was on self-protection. So they didn't want to be held liable. um, And so they weren't going to admit... One, they weren't going to admit that they had mismanaged things. Um, And I suppose the other side of it is, personally, we felt like they really didn't want to have anything to do with us. Mm. Because, because let's put it this way there was no running to give help to his daughters or or, or to me um, and here's an example of how much the length of time this stuff takes so there's all the immediate analysis that's going on they're studying the factors around his death the coroner's come to coming to a conclusion you'll even come to a decision about that It goes on for so long, the management of this afterwards. So Jason, one of his daughters, was um, sitting HSC. So he died as she was going into HSC. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So we've then got a situation where we're talking about it as a little family. Do you want to keep going? Do you want to stop? She wanted to keep going. Like, I've done all the prep. I'm Mm. almost there. So you then need... To engage with the system in a way that says, okay, how do we get medical certificates? How do we take into account that some extra care provision needs to be made for this that this kid's going through this? So we had to make contact with his doctors. It was like road runner they couldn't have run for the hills fast enough. so they provided no medical documentation at all. Mm. Well, your daughter wasn't our patient, so... I'd make calls, they just wouldn't return them. And I, I, you can still hear I'm pissed about it even now because I think, why? Why did you do this? Is mm. it because you had you formed an opinion that we were to? There's that thing where there's that, that conversation that's happening in your head where you're like, do they think we were to blame for this? What had he been saying? I, you yes. know, mm. his daughters. could the system not have stepped forward to be a bit more supportive and demonstrative? So, in fact, we did get the medical certificates. We ended up having to go to our local GP, who knew all the history anyway. But technically it was meant to be his doctor's that was providing all of that, all of it. Yeah. Um, And his trauma counsellor, similarly, oh, you, you get on one hand, look, if you ever need me, you know... Um, I'm devastated by what's happened, and if you ever need me for appointments, you know that I'd always take you, take you on. Also, I loaned Jason a book. Um, would you be able to have a look and and see if it's in your house and give it back to me? <laughs> and I was like, Are you freaking kidding me? And you know, one of my daughters, when she saw that email from the one of uh, from the counsellor, absolutely went ballistic. Mm. And said, did she, "Did she? Is she aware? <laughs> is she aware of how that's going to land with yes. people? Yeah. And then, of course, she looked up on the internet. You know that book that she's looking for. She can buy it on the internet again for twelve dollars. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. there's multiple layers of system." There's many points of system engagement that go on for a really, really long time and longer than you, you would ever think they're going to go on for. So what was the finding in your case? What, what was the outcome of the, of the coroner's investigation?
0: Well, the coroner's uh, report was death by neck compression, uh, death by, you know, suicide herself, done by herself. But really the the bigger question for me, and the coroner was at pains to say to me, the reason for an inquest is to find out the cause of death. And I guess it depends on how far you're gonna take that word cause of death, uh, you know, how far you're gonna extend that. Yes, we know exactly the physical manifestation of why she died, but there was a much greater inquiry into the systems that that failed to prevent that, uh, I guess, is the question. And it was very clear to me that all of the psychiatrists and counsellors and every contact, once there's a, a deceased person, it's just all stations cover your own butt And, you know, I have compassion for people working in that system. I don't want to sit here and say, oh, they're all evil, selfish mongrels, because I don't think that is the reality. But I do think that they are also in a system. They are part of the system. And the system is failing. And that's my biggest point, is the system is failing. When the reports that the coroners gave me um, about the other... Uh, suicides that I was reading there was a lot of alcohol and drug addiction and every time you went to a, a um, hospital they're like oh look that's not mental health that's drug and alcohol so it doesn't apply here and it just seemed to be such a strange distinction it's like clearly uh, it is not boundaried in that way there is not a clear line oh this bit's mental health and this spits drug and alcohol. They are interlinked and they are feeding each other. And you cannot say because someone's a drinker or takes drugs, that there's not also really serious mental health things that need help with. And whether it's because there isn't enough resources in the system, whether it's because they don't really know what to do, uh, whether it's because there is some other social expectation that families are going to sort those kinds of things out or the community should sort those things out. There's so many questions in there. Um, And that's what I wanted to have exposed. And what was exposed was some of those questions, but it was very clear to me. People lied. There was two uh, doctors that blatantly lied on their report that they submitted and I asked the coroner can you please um, I accepted there wasn't going to be an inquest I said but I would like to have my objections to I think it was three statements in the whole report I said you need to have these on the record from my perspective they are incorrect and uh, they're mis- they're not, uh, they're not the reality from my perspective of what happened and I need that to be in the rec- in the official record of her death that this is being questioned. And I wasn't going to persist it. He offered me the chance I could have persisted beyond that and I couldn't see the value in persisting but I sincerely wanted the outcome to be that if someone starts looking through the records and looking at all the details of people's lives and deaths in this manner, that the information is there for them to use for their research.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, we. Uh, Jason died of uh, a drug overdose, mm. which is labelled, kind of in the final analysis, is um, labelled as a mixed drug toxicity because he had so many different drugs in his system um, when he died. So that analysis actually happens fairly early in the piece because it's from pieces of evidence that they extract from the body. So they can do that analysis fairly early on. So you kind of got, in Jason's case, it was like an encyclopaedia. It was an entire booklet because... um, so much analysis on each different drug that they had found in his system had been undertaken by the toxicologists and the degree to which they measure, okay, was this amount sufficiently toxic? What was the thing that mm-hmm. kind of tipped tipped it over the edge and kind of um, you know ended his life? So that happened fairly early on and that was certainly the finding, but I just wanted to pick up on some of the things that you mentioned as well the reports or witness statements that were given by some of the people that were part of Jason's mental health team, I was equally as frustrated about the way that they had characterised what had happened. So it was that part of it. What I I guess I would say to families is if, if you are in a state of mind where you can make a witness statement and tell your story... And it's hard because it's the hardest time in your life where you're least able to do that because you're a mess, but it is really important to do it because other parts, if your loved one had any interaction with different systems, whether that's mental health or drug and alcohol or workplace if there was some workplace issue those people are also going to be giving witness statements and they will be as you said representing the institutions to which they belong Um, and your interests don't feature much in their conversations so from our point of view Jason's mental health support people are not going to come forward and say yeah we we kind of fuck this one up, we mismanaged it. He was on really, really high dosages of things which we just kept up scaling and we weren't really aware of the fact that he was in a deep psychosis, that because he was white, male, professional, incredibly clever, because Jason was a very, very smart man um, who was kind of the leader of a team in an office environment. He was an analyst So he was hoodwinked. The mental health professionals are not going to come forward and say, actually, we let a lot of this go because we took at face value the story that he was telling us, that he was really, really stressed at work. Absolutely, that was probably true. That whatever else was happening in his life... He, he basically slipped through their fingers. And no one's going to come forward and say that. What they're going to say is, oh, his wife left him. That's why it happened.
0: Yeah. Does the word closure mean anything to you uh, in this context or does having a decision from the coroner's court play any role in closure? And would you expect it to?
2: I didn't think it would. I actually didn't think that decision would. But because it goes on for so long, it drags on for months, so you've actually got time to reflect on it. You're going into the police, you're giving your witness statements, they prepare their brief, that goes to the coroner. You've actually got time at certain points where you kind of think about, gee, what do I actually want to be written about this? What do I want to be said? So it became increasingly important to me as the um, as the, as the story unfolded. Also, in part, I think because I was reading the environment and also the conversation that's going on in your head at the same time, is that I could see that it the situation for our family and Jason's death I felt was increasingly being characterised as a marital breakup. And that really, really broke my heart, mm. really broke my heart because you could say a lot of things about people's relationships from the outside, but there were a lot of people commenting on things that they knew nothing about and they still felt that they had a sense of entitlement about commenting on them. So, And it was a very easy, going back to other things that we've talked about, is very easy if you can package things up Package a reason up in a nice bow, mm. blaming. It's mm-hmm. very easy to do. When it, oh, well, she left him. That's why. Mm. It broke him. Mm. And if anyone, you, anything about the amount of work that was being put into trying to get Jason help in the last couple of weeks of his life, try yeah. the last 20 years of his life, you know, there are lots of things that could be said, but for anyone to level the accusation that I did not love him, that hurt. So it be was very... what you say, people. Very, very important for me to have that love written up in a way. I don't know how you go about doing that. I didn't know how you, you, you went about doing that. So I gave my statements... And a lot of it was about this is someone that that we really, really loved and care about, cared about. And our little family, that was our whole world, the two girls and Jason and I. And it had been our whole world for the... He was the centre of our lives. So it was very, very important to, to capture that. So I think this is why I, I kind of have good things, I guess, to say about the coroner's court is that they heard that and they got that that was really, really important, particularly for Jason's girls. So in the incredibly extensive document that we got at the end, because there's the toxicology reports are very involved, and then all the witness statements. So you get like a little folder of things. It's not just a one-page decision. But at the very top of it, where it announces Jason's death... You know, this is an investigation into, you know, the death of Jason Anderson, who was dearly loved by his wife, Tanya, and his two daughters. That mattered to me because it means that in all of the mess and the, I don't know, the, the failure of, of the system to see us, I didn't think we were seen. I didn't feel... I certainly didn't feel we were heard in the lead-up to his death. We, we certainly weren't heard. Um, someone had seen us um, and, and it was in there. And it matters. That stuff matters. So there was kind of a closure for
0: us. Sorry, I've spoken a lot. <laughs> no, that's good. That's It's good to hear all of it, Tanya. I could listen to you all day. Um, for me, the word closure, I, I, do, I don't know. I guess I expected... Uh, as I said, referenced earlier, some kind of justice. But I was very diligent in what I thought of putting the facts forward. You know, I made a very diligent case. And whilst I didn't expect an inquest, I really thought uh, 95%, this guy is not going to do an inquest. There was probably a bit of me that was hopeful. There was a bit of me that feels like the... The justice fighter or the warrior that, you know, wanted to try and make a difference, like a bit of trying to be the change manager for society somehow. Um, there was a bit of me that thought, oh, five 5%, maybe there's a small chance that they will pick this case up and run with it. And if they do, I will be prepared for everything in it. So when they said, and like you said, it takes a long time uh you know gabby's was about 19 20 months um from the death to the final report from the coroner and to say they weren't going to do an inquest god knows if they were going to do an inquest you could probably add five years to that i don't know exactly how long perhaps there's a a sense of of urgent greater or less urgencies with different situations and availability of evidence and all sorts of processes that might affect that. But in my case, uh, yes, they decided not to and I accepted that decision and in a way I thought, okay, well now I will put my energy elsewhere. That is, the, I guess the closure is in, just the closure in that process It was then, okay, well now I'm going to find other avenues to, Tell my daughter's story, and uh, you know this. This whole podcast is is perhaps uh, you know part of that coming forward and saying, well, actually, there is a lot to be said. There is a lot that needs to be said. Uh, there's a lot to be understood for uh, change and the way. And and I don't have the answers. I don't want to pretend I have the answers. But you know, when you've been through something like this, you know what shouldn't be happening. Maybe we don't know what should be happening, but we definitely know what shouldn't be happening. And so for me, that's probably what uh, closure, well, that's the closure of that process. Uh, now what's, what's my next step? Because I, I, I will never give up in this case in one way or another. Maybe I can get more peace of mind and as time goes on, uh, I do get more peace of mind. Uh, there's always those disturbing days that you get that come back and, I still get moments of panic, you get the sort of torment that comes, Um, that all is still there but, uh, you know, trying to hang on to her goodness and my goodness and all of our innocence in the situation... Um, and I mean, it's funny because COVID happened 18 months after she died. So we've been dealing with, uh, you know, two and two and a half years of, uh, or two years of COVID now on top of that. And I think that's definitely affected the, the grieving process, but that's probably a conversation for another episode. (laughs) Content
1: development and background research by Joni Janoway and Tanya Bretherton. Sound, music and audio, pre- and post-production provided by Paddy O'Rourke. If this conversation has been difficult for you, if you're experiencing suicidal thoughts or feelings, or if you're just having a really tough time right now, there is help out there. Lifeline is available 24 hours on their hotline at one three one 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 four. The suicide callback service is also available at 1300 659 467. If you're having a hard time and not even sure how to start the conversation, remember that a trusted GP or a family doctor is also a good place to start.